back and live. I'm Jimmy Krupka, and welcome to Arc City. Arc City is supported by U.S. Ski and Snowboard and officially sponsored by Spider Active Sports, the U.S. Ski Team's apparel supplier for the past 30 years. Learn more at spider.com. All right, guys, I don't really have too much to say today in my intro. Uh, I had an awesome conversation with Michaela. It's a really big deal, by the way, that I got a podcast with her because apparently her agent isn't taking any podcast requests because it's so crazy leading up to the Olympics and everybody's asking for for one. So I'm pretty psyched about the fact that I got one. And I tried to take full advantage and ask some big questions, but you'll have to be the judge of how I did. Now, a few disclaimers before we get started. One, if you think I sound a little bit weird in the interview, I was sick that day, but, uh, you know, there's no sick days when you've got Michaela on the line. And two, in the interview, I call myself a journalist, quote unquote, a few times. I want to be clear, I have not graduated college yet, and I have no official journalism training. So me calling myself a journalist is like a remote control car hobbyist calling themselves a race car driver. (laughs) Anyway, and three... If you've been following Michaela on social media, you may have noticed that she has been posting a ton with Norwegian superstar skier Alexander Kilde, who's her new boyfriend. And so when I managed to get him in the room at the end of the interview for a few questions, I couldn't not play into the couple thing they've got going on. So you'll have to wait and see what I asked them. Um, and, And I was thinking, you know, all these couples, power couples have these joined names. The best I could come up with for these two was McAlexander. So DM me or email me if you've got a better one. But anyway, I'm getting distracted. After I talked to Michaela and Kilday, I've got a cool little history nugget about indoor ski areas. Uh, Spoiler, they started way earlier than you think they did. And finally, at the end, as always, I read the mail. So without further ado, Michaela Schifrin. Uh, Michaela Schifrin, welcome to Arc City. Thank you. Good to be here. It's been been a minute. I, we haven't. I haven't done this yet, so it's kind of fun. <laughs> you haven't been to Arc City yet. You haven't been on the podcast, uh, so it's wonderful to have you. I've been trying to get you on for a while, but you are <laughs> yeah. busy, and I don't Sorry. blame you for that. No <laughs> worries at all. So it's awesome to have you on the show, and this is big because. People from all walks of life and all different skiing levels are listening to this right now, and they can learn a lot from someone like you. Uh, so I'm excited for that. Well, thank you. <laughs> so first off, <laughs> I, not to put a whole bunch of pressure on this podcast. I mean, I'm not. No pressure. To, no pressure at all. No, no pressure at all. Yeah. Um, story of your life. Yeah. So let's start right off with the Jeff Schifrin Athlete Resiliency Fund, because this is something I want to make sure we get to. I have a lot to talk about, but let's get to this first, because uh, basically I just, I did my research. The focus of this new campaign, this is the words on the website, is to establish need-based direct-to-athlete funding for the national team athletes. And so athletes uh, apply for the funding, which they can use for any costs related to their sports careers. This includes, uh, but is not limited to, living expenses, medical expenses, rehabilitation from injury, education, professional certifications. Do I have that right? And yeah. would you like to say anything more specifically about what it does? Yeah. So, I mean, when we started JSARF um, last year, you know, during COVID, the idea was that 
you know, hopefully it would be successful enough that we could um, maybe go into a, a second phase and try to figure out what that would be. But um, it, at that point, it was like, we just, we just need help now. Athletes need help now yeah. because um, as you know, um, and as most of the athletes on USK and snowboard know that um, all of our sports are incredibly expensive and the travel is very difficult and expensive okay. and everything is time consuming and expensive. So, um, you know, a lot of the athletes are working other jobs, second jobs, even third jobs. And, um, just struggling to be able to actually dedicate themselves to their sport because they have to work other jobs in order to make any money to pay just general life expenses. And then during COVID, obviously that just, um, really threw a wrench in the works even more so. So, um, the goal was just to help kind of keep, uh, keep some wind in the sails through COVID times. Um, and then we, we got, we got a little bit past that got through this season. It was one of, if, if not the most successful season U.S. ski and snowboard has had like as a whole across the board, which awesome. was, yeah. Um, yeah, super exciting. And then we got to talking about kind of phase two of JS ARF this spring um, about trying to, to keep it going and hopefully be able to help athletes maybe a little bit more specifically um, you know, the athletes who really, really need the help versus those who are able to like doing what they're doing and they're doing great and they maybe don't need it as much. So that's where the idea of need-based grants came from. And, um, we're in the process of like working through what the application is actually going to look like and how the selection process is going to go down, because that's probably the most challenging thing is figuring out how do you, how do you select? Um, yeah, that's a really a big question. Yeah. But anyway, we're we're at a uh, 86,000 almost 87,000 at this point and all of um all of donations right now are being matched. So I think the goal is 250,000 and yes. we're getting there. And um that's that feels like it's going to be a really good number to help um a, hopefully a bunch of athletes more significantly than um kind of spreading like a lot over yeah. like very thinly if that makes sense yeah um, so that's our goal and yeah it's yeah. So, so far it's just kind of starting in phase two but yeah the big the biggest thing right now is just figuring out kind of the application process and how that's going to go and um I certainly not doing that alone. <laughs> I have a lot of help from, from a lot of professionals who know yeah. how to actually make that happen. Yeah, I imagine. Yeah, again, you are busy. It's super cool that you're doing this. If you guys, uh, people listening, want to check it out, keeptheflamealive.org. You can donate there. Uh, and it's cool. It's different from donating directly to the team. <clears throat> it, 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 this, these, this money goes directly to athletes which is definitely a cool thing. And I, on this podcast, I've touched on a bunch of times the fact that skiing is, it's too spread out financially. It's too hard to access financially. So we need to do everything we can. So I'm pumped about that. And then if, if you would, Michaela, could you talk a little bit about like, you know, it's named after your father who passed away last year, which was incredibly tough, I'm sure and just what it would mean to him 
to have this foundation named after him um, and what it means to you? Well, my dad, um, first and foremost, he loved watching great athletes compete at the top level of their sport. Like he loved watching anybody do things really, really well. And he was the guy who watched, you know, whatever the, the heroic, like the miracle hockey game or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. And he was like the one crying, um, you know, when he would come to my races, especially, especially World champs or, um, the Olympics. And there's always a shot of him like crying, crying. Um, yep. yeah, because he just was like, he's the person who got moved to tears and he absolutely, he was, it's been a uh, supporter of the U.S. ski team since before I was born, like well before I was born. Um, he always, I think he wanted to race um, World Cup himself, but had like, life had other plans. He became a doctor, um, but he was always like, he was just always supportive of the athletes on the US ski team. And then it's kind of grown into US ski and snowboard. And um, he, like I said, he just loves watching anybody compete at the top of their level. So being a part or having his name be like the headliner for this campaign to help assist, to assist athletes in their goals to compete at the top level of their sports. Uh, I think he'd be pretty excited about that um he also like was never one for wanting the the recognition in that sense so he also would probably like sort of laugh at it and sort of make fun of it a little bit you know like oh, you don't need to name it up whatever but um i am sure he would be incredibly proud and yeah i mean that's how things go like he's not here to see it but part of the reason that that we started it was because because of the tragedy we went through. So um, trying to turn turn it into something that could be positive for other people, if at all possible. Well, that's that's really cool. Um, and you know, I kind of wonder how has him. You know, I, I if if you don't want to answer the question, you know, I don't want to get too deep here. You but, can ask it. It's okay. Okay. <laughs> Um, and I know a lot of journalists have already hit on this, so we can move to other more, you know, exciting stuff. But I, I'm really curious how losing your father has changed your relationship with ski racing and in any capacity. Oh, gosh. Um, it's funny because ski racing, I mean, I started skiing with my family. Like, I got into skiing because we did it as a family together. It was just, it was like, you know, you play board games or you like make dinner together or something like we skied together. And, um, I, I think in the, in the beginning skiing for me was always so centered around family. And then over the years, especially it was, as I started racing on the world cup, it became more of like, I still love it. I still am passionate about it, of course, but it became more of a, uh, like a job title, um, I yeah. am, I'm a few racer and I'm racing on the world cup. And like, this is, it became more of a job and sort of the, like ski racing of what I know it as now, uh, it detached a little bit from that original 
um, concept I had that it was like all centered around family. And now it's so more like I couldn't do it without my family um, and their support and encouragement and just making it possible for me. But when I go out and I ski, I'm not, and this is actually something I've struggled with over the last year because I thought it was going to change. I, I didn't think I was going to be able to ski again without him here. And there's been moments where I feel like, like when the first race, the first win back in Courchevel, um, it was actually like a very sad race and a very sad day. I guess that has changed because normally if I won, like I, I found some joy in that, of course. Yeah. But um, now winning is always has a little taste of a bittersweet. And it feels like every good thing that happens in my life from here on out is like the first time a good thing has happened without be, like not being able to share that with him. But um, as I was saying, it's just... I didn't want skiing. I don't want to hate skiing because my dad's not here to still love it. Um, mm. If that makes sense. And for it a really long sense, time, yeah. I thought that was going to happen. So luckily it hasn't um, because I think probably because so much of the sport has morphed into like what I know it as today, which is world cup ski racing, kind of a job, sometimes stressful um, can be totally worth it at moments. <laughs> Yeah. And other times it's just brutal. And then other times it's just totally brutal. Um, And I'm actually thankful for that sort of detachment because it allows me to still do the sport and still find some enjoyment in it. I think if I completely associated it only with my parents, with family, um, I would have quit. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Well, that's interesting to hear uh, kind of, all that back and forth, your relationship with the family, and and now, so the disassociation brings me to a really um, g- good question that I wanted to ask. Well, you can be the judge of if it's good, but who would Michaela Schifrin be uh, if ski racing didn't exist? Oh gosh, well, I really enjoyed science in school. I remember taking a chemistry course that I took through an online program because it was, I don't know, it was, it was not the same exact like course that all my classmates were taking at Burke um, because I was not able to be at Burke. So I took this course during the summer and turns out when everybody else um, as a, whatever, I don't know what it was, sophomore junior year or whatever everybody else went to unit basically to chapter 12 in this book and the books were not exactly the same but you know they're all pretty much the same yeah I had to go to chapter 24 to get my credit so I was like you've got to be kidding me I'm doing literally twice as much as everybody else but I worked all summer long to get it done and I remember thinking wow I would actually really enjoy this course if I didn't have to ski and like go to the gym every single day and basically just find time to study in between workouts and whatever. And like, you know, the drill. So I remember thinking that I was like, of course I wouldn't change it for the world, but like, I actually love this stuff. I just, I'm really struggling with it right now. Cause it got into like, you know, organic chem, like college level organic chem that I wasn't, I was like, I'm not prepared yeah. to learn this right now. I don't know what's happening. <laughs> 
was like asking my strength coach who was working on his PhD at the time. And he was like, I don't even know the answer to that. Like, what? <laughs> so anyway, I probably would have come, like gone down that path. I never took physics. So I would have like kind of kept exploring the sort of science route. Um, I think I saw, I see myself being maybe an environmental engineer um, or like a marine biologist or something like that. But then over the years, because of skiing, I've been introduced to different aspects of like, like life for like business or whatever. And um, interior design, buying this house and designing it. So there's a lot of different things that I'm, I've been really interested in. Um, couldn't say for sure, but that's kind of where my head's at. <laughs> okay. Well, that's great to hear because everyone knows Michaela, the skier, uh, you know, but there's, <laughs> there's a lot more behind you than just the skiing. But I wanted to Well, not anymore. Sure. Now, like now, if you ask me any question that I learned in that chemistry course, I'd be like, I don't know. I forgot it all. Maybe What's it would H2O? Back, that's water. Thank you for that. Wow. What a chemist. All right. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but, and, and my second half of that question would be if you uh, would go, if you had to tomorrow uh, switch Olympic sports, uh, what do you think you'd have the best chance at doing well in? Jimmy, I could do anything. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, my best, my best chance. Would it any any sport, summer or winter? Yes. Yeah. Um, best chance at like making it to the Olympics or best chance at a medal? Uh, making it to the Olympics, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. You could say 10 meter air rifle. That one can't be too hard. That's probably harder than you think it it's is. probably harder than I think. <laughs> ski cross. Is there women's ski cross? There is. I would be so bad at ski cross. Those got they are so like, just badass. Are you kidding? <laughs> I would are be you like, too nice? Mm, first jump, I'd be like, mm, I can't, I don't want to do this anymore. And then at that point, you really can't stop because you're just on the track and there's people yeah. running. So you, Oh no, I would, yeah, I would be the one to wreck myself in that. Um, I would want to say tennis maybe, but that's like, I don't like to say it because obviously the amount of work it takes is like astronomical, but if I wasn't a skier and I started early and in that sense, like maybe I could have, you know, developed the skills I have in skiing, but instead in tennis, mm -hmm. you, that's probably a lot of tennis, one don't you? Yeah, I yeah, try to yeah. play a lot. I feel like it's good cross training. My mom is an amazing tennis player, so she taught me how to play. Mm -hmm. And um, we still play t once or maybe twice a week at least. And I don't know. It's like I'm good at what I'm able to do. I've got a pretty good forehand, pretty good backhand. And every now and then I hit a drop shot that actually goes over the net. But um, I can't serve. Like there's a lot of things I'm not able to do. But maybe if I had put the time in to tennis that I put in skiing might've been okay. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. I imagine you've got, you're known for your work ethic. So <laughs> don't lie. Yeah. yeah, you are. Yeah. Like, I can tell you that. Yeah. That's the job of a journalist. We get to just tell you things. Uh, so speaking of the Olympic season coming up, I know you're being asked a million questions about it. Uh, but, and, and it also means that you go to these events, these mainstream events like the ESPYs. So, do you enjoy those big mainstream events like that? 
I enjoy them. Um, it's just, it's just a lot. And I think there's some people thrive, really thrive off that like extreme social interaction. Um, and, you know, let's say like before pre-COVID even, because this time it was even smaller than it normally is. And that was more my style, I would say. But pre-COVID that, you know, there's people everywhere. You're just, it's like sensory overload. And um, I remember a couple of years ago that I basically spent the week in LA for the ESPYs and then the Kids' Choice Sports Awards. And just coming home and being like, I am so exhausted because we just yeah. packed in as much media as we could then. And I was still doing my double sessions every day. So just like waking up earlier oh, wow. and doing them yeah. when you get in. That's a lot. So it's like the the kind of the, I guess the agreement is that I like unspoken agreement is that I can go do those things as long as I, I stay on track with my workouts. So that's like with my, with Jeff, my strength coach, I've been, um, or this, this summer I was telling him like, okay, I'm probably going to go to the SBs this week. And he ended up coming to New York with me, um, and help like find gyms and whatnot. So then Alex and I could still like go to the gym and get our workouts done. But it was, oh, it was a hard week. It was like, it was a hard week for workouts, um, as well. And then add on top of it, like these events that go a little later into the night and everything. So it's fun. It's just exhausting. Um, but I wouldn't not go if that makes sense. Like, definitely. I mean, it's, there's it's, a, it's a big deal that you go because you are really being an ambassador for the sport and ski racing needs people in the mainstream, letting mainstream people know, Hey, here's a cool sport. Here's a cool are, athlete definitely. doing that sport. Um, yeah. which is something that Lindsay did a ton of and still continues to do, but it's kind of really only you two doing that mainstream stuff. H- have you talked to Lindsay like f- for advice about this kind of stuff? Not as much. I mean, I just like, I've seen how she like transcended the sport and, um, you know, between her and especially Bodie as well became these household names that people like, it's almost like the Lindsay sport versus ski racing in a way, which is not necessarily a bad thing. It's just like people, at, at least there's some recognition for what we do. But I think um, like ideally we'll be able to get more of our athletes into that, uh, into that spotlight. And not, not just like first and foremost, I think the goal is having our athletes like winning races, you know, having that depth at the highest level. But, um, once we get that and we're starting to really like get that, um, being able to showcase our sport in a more, in a broader way, um, versus just like a single, a single star in that spotlight, having, Mm -hmm like being able to show more of our athletes there and more, more of our Olympians, more of our athletes who are racing on the world cup every day. Um, that's going to be like, when you go to those events, you know, I notice like there's, there's multiple basketball players, there's multiple football players. There's the entire Buccaneers team. Like they're all, they're all there. So it's just when they, when you're one or two ski racers there and you're just like, Oh, here we are. Um, (laughs) 
but I do, that's something I think about. Cause especially this year, I was thinking I just, there's no way that going to the SBs is really going to fit this year with COVID with everything. It just doesn't make sense, but being invited and being able to um, present an award, especially is a huge honor. And like, I take into account the fact that if, if I didn't go, there would be nobody representing ski racing there at all. Exactly. Um, yeah. Hopefully in the future, you know, that won't be the case, but maybe we have, you know, multiple athletes going together and that would be really cool. <laughs> that would be cool. Yeah. Well, at least you got Alex there. So there's two ski racers. Yeah. That Even was awesome. He's not American. And he got, he got a shout out from Boss for his suit coat he was wearing. <laughs> like that was awesome. huge. That was so much fun. People were so excited. They're like, you're from Norway? Are you kidding? Yeah. That's cool. Nice. So dealing with all of this Olympic stuff, I'm going to try to go meta here. Uh, So the, you know, there's all these expectations on you this year, but it's, this is like a normal thing. It's not like this year is different. It's like every year, Michaela Schifrin is supposed to win according to most people. (laughs) And that must be like, you get third and people are like, what's going on with Michaela? Like that must be like, that's something that so few athletes experience. That's something that like Lindsay experienced in her good years. It's something that like Michael Jordan experiences, but it's like such a small group of people um, that are like supposed to win. So how do you deal with that? And is it pretty mentally draining? It used to be mentally draining so I went through phases like in the very beginning of my career I was just this like whatever 16 17 18 year old and some of the mental things like focus and whatnot that came naturally and I used to talk about how I just didn't feel pressure at all and that was true in the beginning like I would get nervous maybe but I never I never felt pressure to win and maybe that's part of why I did win early on and I kept and I kept winning because winning my first world cup race, I didn't feel pressure to win again. I just was like, I'm just going to keep skiing and we'll see. But, um, then it kind of went into this stage in a few years where I had like some extreme anxiety over that exactly over basically people asking me what went wrong. Not, not if I didn't win, but if I didn't win by like a two second margin, cause I had that year where I got injured. Yeah. <laughs> but every song race that I did race in was I think like over a second and a half or something so I only raced five songs that year but people were going like in crazy over the the statistics and then the next season I, I started my, that first race I um in Levy I won by I don't know six tenths or something and the questions I got were like do you think you've gotten worse because you didn't win by two seconds? And that like, somehow it became, like that's I want to question. Yeah. Well, it was just, I mean, actually looking back on it, I think it's a natural question to ask. Um, like people are thinking it and I, and when I'm watching other people compete in sports, you know, for instance, right now in F1 and like Lewis Hamilton isn't winning every single race and you're like, Oh no, do you think like, have you gotten worse or whatever? We're all thinking it. It's just in that moment, I was like really angry that people, anybody had the nerve to ask me that because it turned what would have been, what would have otherwise been a pretty good day into like, I had, I have a really negative feeling about that race in Levy. And I've always had that, um, not, not 
that particular race that year. Yeah. I mean, and um, it was just like that was the start of my maybe like stage two of my career where I did let a lot of outside opinion dictate how I felt about my own skiing and my own um, races and competing. And I still had quite a few wins that season, but every single one of them felt tainted with a really bitter feeling about like almost just relief that I, I was able to win because otherwise, you know, people would tear me apart for not doing what I'm supposed to do. And that took a couple years, like through the, the South Korea Olympics to kind of kick the feeling of what everybody else is saying or what the expectations are from the outside and just focusing on the standards I have for my own skiing. And it's still a difficult thing to like redirect my focus from what I know everyone else is thinking or what they're asking or saying, but you kind of have to go through that in order to get past it. So, you know, it started with like when people said, you know, you could win your 50th world cup today. Like, are you thinking about that? Well, no, I wasn't, but now I am. Now because I am. Of accident. <laughs> you know? And I got to a point where I was like, oh, there it is. Like yours, you said the number, there's more numbers. There's always statistics. And I, what I try to do is just remember that when people ask those questions, whether it's media or just friends or family or a random person on the street, if they ask it, they're literally just doing their job or just asking something that they just want to know. And it's a really natural, like so far I've, I've been fairly lucky to not get questions from people who seem like they just want to make me feel really bad about myself. <laughs> um, yeah. And if I get any questions with someone like that, then I'm like, okay, bye. <laughs> We're not talking yeah. again. Cause you just seem like you're a really angry person. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Now, <laughs> I I heard this this theory that someone told me that you your method perform or for performing on race day is not necessarily skiing your absolute best, but it's just getting so good in training that on race day you can ski like ninety percent and still win. Is that the thing? Yeah. Um. I mean, it sort of worked out that way for a while. I think now a lot of the women have raised their level enough that it's like this, this past season, I was a lot of those races. I was giving all I had. The issue is that if you give all you have, but you're underprepared, then all you have is most likely not going to be good enough. But if you're like essentially overprepared, then everything you have to give is going to be like, well past the criteria to essentially win the race. So um, that's my mindset kind of comes from just like my best shot at even having a chance to win is to have the best preparation or to be the strongest, the um, just the most prepared on the mountain. And that is a little bit like a motto that drives me when we're not racing in the off season like on the really hard sessions in the gym or when we're, you know, training in Chile and I'm wondering if I should try to shoot for one more run or not. And like, those are the things that push me to do the one extra rep or, you know, go a little heavier in the weight or just, you know, a little extra focus because, because you, you just can't yeah. skimp on it. Yeah. People put so much pressure on having a perfect race day that they kind of forget that the better you are to begin with, you know, the better you're right. going to be. 
which is I'm a Patriot fan. I, I'm assuming you're probably a Broncos. Are you a Patriot fan? <laughs> I'm a, uh, I mean, I could be a Patriot fan. I'm, I obviously, I support the Broncos and I'm a pretty big Seattle Seahawks fan as well. Okay. But, um, well, anyway, I mean, what I was going to say, what the Patriots have done. <laughs> yeah. What I was going to say is that's Bill Belichick's whole thing, you know, winning all those Super Bowls. He always would say it's just about the preparation, um, yeah. which, which, which I love because I'm a huge Patriots fan. Anyway, we have gotten to the end of our prescribed 30 minutes. Um, I don't know. <laughs> How if, much if, do you have? <laughs> what's that? How much more do you have? We could go a little over. Oh, I, you know, actually, I have to text my uh, strength coach quickly and just tell him that I'm going to be five minutes late. Uh, okay. That's okay. He's, he's got plenty of time. <laughs> going to be a few late uh, talking to Michaela Schifrin. Okay. That should get me. That should buy me some time. Uh, so, oh, here, there's, okay, I got, I got two questions and, and okay. it'll be done. Uh, the first one is about social media, because I imagine it's really difficult to be a high-profile athlete because, like, no, the more followers you get, the more a small percentage of those will be haters. Yeah. So yes. I imagine that's super tough, and I think it was probably really tough when the uh, we don't need to talk about it specifically, but the, the the thing that comes to mind was last June when George Floyd died and there was huge social upheaval, uh, that was probably a really hard thing to navigate. And that was just one of those things where I was like, oh man, like I can't imagine being someone with a million followers trying to deal with this. Yeah, well, it's true. And then you look at the other side and you're like, well, I can't imagine being George Floyd either, you know? So okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, position, no, I'm, trying not, I'm definitely not comparing those two situations. No, yeah. I know, but that's like what I think about to keep it in perspective because okay even having the thought of like how hard is it to be in my position that no matter what I say, someone's going to hate it. And then you're like, well, <laughs> even that in and of itself is like a fairly privileged thing to say, but mm -hmm. um, I am lucky to have a following that I do have. And I think generally speaking, it's my followers have come from like come from uh, how, do, how do I put this? Like they're fairly authentic followers, if you know what I mean. I, because yeah. I've tried to stay just very true to what I believe or my personality on Instagram, it's like a, an extension of myself or, you know, the sponsors I've aligned with because of what my values are and that they match with my sponsors. So everything, even the advertisements are like an extension of who I am. So hopefully the people who are following me, follow me because they appreciate that or, you know, like you yeah. said, there's that there's that percentage of people who are just straight up haters and they just want to like couple you or whatever. But uh, for sure, when those controversial um, events arise, and there have been a lot of those over the last few years, especially, it's the the difficult thing is in deciding how how you want to take a stand I don't think it's the question of if you want to like take a stand but it's how you want to say that and how you want to share your essentially your opinion out there because 
um, very few of us know actually all of the facts and almost none of us who are out there posting about it are, um, you know, cert certified historians or like political scientists or whatever. We don't all know everything that goes on there. So you, everything is sort of your best guess, um, strong opinion, essentially assumptions. And one thing that I've tried to stay away from is putting my opinion out there as if it's fact, because basically, you know, the, the negative side of social media that has come along with many positive things and like connecting the world together in a better way. Um, one of the negative things is come that it's like hard to decipher opinion from fact. Um, so I just don't want to be pouring yeah. fuel on the file when I fire, when I'm, you know, saying what I think and, and people are taking that as opinion because I'm not an expert. Absolutely not. I'm pretty much only an expert in skiing and even that's debatable. So <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> One of the yeah. things I've been afraid of, and I think the hardest thing during like Black Lives Matter, which is not even over, it's just like during the 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 most like hottest moment. Um, yeah, was how how do I say this so people understand where I stand, but are not going to assume that I'm trying to tell them how they're supposed to think. If yes. that makes sense, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I think that's a yeah. really good answer. Yeah. I think it's a great answer. Um, and I appreciate you uh, putting it in perspective in terms of how tough the situation really is. So my last question is a fun one, but it only works if uh, Alex is not in the room. Is Alex there? If he's not in the room? He's yeah. he's right. He's on the couch. He's been watching this whole time. It's really creepy, actually. I can show you, but I'm just trying not to show you the rest of the house because it's a little messy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so he has like, to leave I wanted to do a fun game where I ask you both the question, but you guys are not in the same room. Do you want to do that? Yeah. Okay. You want to go? Yeah, go? yeah you have to leave. And then he comes back as soon as I, as soon as you answer the question. Okay. Yeah. Where are you going to go? You want to go in the garage and I'll just come get you and then I'll stay there. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But it's like not the nicest place to send him. <laughs> In the dog house, the, yeah. Go in the garage. Get out of here. Okay, so. Is he gone? No, he's gone. Yeah, okay. he's gone. Okay. Okay. Um, so I wanted to ask you what your dream date is, and then I'm going to ask him what he thinks your dream date is. Oh, that's really funny. I don't even have a dream date, though. This is going to be funny. Um, or just like what, like, what would be an awesome day for you? An awesome an awesome date yeah day day an awesome day yeah. okay uh an awesome day is probably um in maui actually okay so this is like when i think about like in my free time where i would want to be it's always like in maui you know wake up go for a run and this is kind of what we did like it was the two weeks that we were in Maui, but go for like an early morning run, have a really good breakfast with like eggs and papaya and mango and bacon and avocado and toast and everything. And then um, maybe going to the beach while it's still a little bit calm and not too windy. And then as the wind picks up, then we would go to the windsurfing, like more side of the island and 
windsurf a little bit. And then you do that until you're exhausted and that doesn't take that much time. So then we go to uh, like drive back over to the other side where we're staying and have like an early like snacks or something or early dinner and you watch the sunset and then maybe like boogie boarding in the evening when the waves are nice, like body surfing. And then, I don't know, maybe a couple of drinks and bed. Perfect. Okay. <laughs> Let's see what he <laughs> I says. like it. That's quite the detailed answer. So we'll see if he gets it word for word. <laughs> I don't think he's going to get it word for word. Probably not. Let's he bring might not in. get close. He's probably going to be like, oh, probably skiing. <laughs> <laughs> no, Skiing's I'll cool. give him, I'll, I'll give him that hint. Yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. Sounds good. I'm going to go get him. Okay. I think he's like hammering down a wall right now. So I probably actually should just huh. hold on. One All second. right. Can I stay and hear what he says? No way. You're not going to say no. Yeah, you can stay. Yeah. You can stay? That's unfair. Yeah. You're not allowed to know what I said. OK. We're, we're teaming up on you, Alex. <sighs> all right. Well, um, first of all, I want to give a warm welcome to uh, Alexander Kilday uh, to Arc City. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. It's it's great to have you on the show, and we're going to start things off hot right with uh, this trivia question here. Okay. So I just asked Michaela what her um, ideal date would be, and then she was like, well, I don't know, but I said, okay, what's your, what's your favorite? What would be an awesome day for you in your free time? What would be an awesome day anywhere in the world? And she gave me a pretty detailed answer. So I'm, I'm oh, wondering wow. what, what do you think she said? Uh, well, there's got to be a nap in there, <laughs> that's for sure. Oh, a nap and some training. Um, yep, she did mention the run. Uh, some nature, some sunset. Uh, she said sunset, good, good, yep. Good food. Oh my gosh, she said good food. Uh, yeah. A movie. Oh, oh. Fair. I forgot the movie. I don't know, you didn't say movie? That's okay. What? That's, that's <laughs> really strange. Where would, where would it be? Where would it would be, be uh, maybe on uh, on Maui. Oh, she nailed said it! That. Nailed, I it. nailed it! I just nailed it. <laughs> well, did my job pretty well, huh? There you go. All right, you guys passed the test. That was pretty good. Good. That was awesome. really yeah. good. Good job. I was really nervous. I, I was. Uh, movie. I haven't been that nervous in a long time. <laughs> yeah. So you know, so this is a great question now because I I don't know if you've experienced the same thing as me, but being injured, you kind of start to crave those pressure situations, and mm -hmm. I found myself on the weirdest sorts of things being super focused and super intense because I'm like I miss the competition. Do you feel mm -hmm. that? Yeah, for sure. It's uh, it's every day. As soon as you get a possibility to be sort of in a position that's a little bit uncomfortable, I find that pretty interesting because when you're an athlete, when you compete in a race or whatever, you're always in that position. And especially during the winter where you have every weekend, you have sort of an exam uh, where you have to deliver your 
your goods and right now it's it's not been like that for a long long time and i'm really craving it for sure so like yeah. playing tennis yesterday with uh <laughs> michaela <laughs> it's fun to fun to have the challenge you know she crushed me but that's uh that's another deal <laughs> probably has more to do with your tennis skills than your mental skills there yeah 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 i don't know but it's uh it's fun though to be in that position again and try to make small situations into something a little bigger and then compete again i'm really looking forward for it too yeah i can imagine so how how is recovery going uh just briefly let us know well it's pretty good uh azl is for sure takes a long time uh yeah. ligament takes a long time to heal and um, there's a lot of races out there that knows the situation and it's been in the same situation as me but it's going it's going well i can't complain it's been actually no setbacks i have had a little bit of a uh problem with the one of the ligaments uh on the hamstring side but other than that it's been going really well so getting the strength back getting the volume back and the function of the knee is, is really getting to back to normal and ready ready for some skiing soon. And skiing soon, right? In August, you said? In August. So that's going to be my first camp. We'll see. I'll start off pretty easy. Uh, yeah. Same for you, I guess. You know, step exactly. by step. Start with some drills and, uh, and take it from there. Yeah. Well, my last question, I don't want to keep you guys, is... As I, I, I hate this because I, I get really annoyed at all the, the journalists that keep doing like, Olympic year, Olympic year. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. Um, but I got to ask about the Olympics because last Olympics, uh, your two teammates uh, won medals. And going into this Olympics, now <clears throat> uh, Axel is retired and it, you're more of, you're, you know, you're a big favorite. And have you talked to Axel at all? And what's the you know, the team atmosphere, like going into an Olympic year, because I know you guys have a, a really good team atmosphere. Mm. Well, I haven't talked to him sp uh, particularly about Olympics, but, you know, mm. I talk to him occasionally about, you know, experiences and he's been in my situations many times. And, uh, you know, we're just talking about stuff and trying to share, I don't know, uh, experiences. And, and he has a lot to say always. And, um, going into this season, it's different for me than anywhere, any, any time before. So, uh, I know it's Olympic year, but I'm pretty calm with it right now. Actually, uh, it's the nerves are going to come when it, it closes, it's closing up. But, uh, right now I feel really comfortable and I just, I'm really excited to get going skiing and then, and, and start competing. Uh, it's been a while. Yeah. Well, you should be uh, prepped for the pressure because you've played tennis with Michaela. Yeah, exactly. So, so we're on we're on schedule for sure. On schedule, yeah. So I guess if either of you win a medal, you uh, owe some thanks to the other for elevating their mental game. Yeah, I would say so. For sure. There you go. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, at the end of the show, I always give you a minute to uh, say something, whatever you want, uh, whether it's a shout out to someone, a shout out to an idea, a shout out to an organization or a foundation. Um, uh, we'll start with you, Michaela. Anything? Oh, gosh. Uh, well, shout out to Jeff Schiffer and Athlete Resiliency Fund, which we touched on okay. earlier. 
Um, Keeptheflamealive.org. Keeptheflamealive.org. And thank you to all the people who have already donated and to the people who are going to donate because that's that's huge for our athletes and USD and so board and it's uh, making a big difference. So, yeah. <laughs> awesome. Alex? Well, I want to give a shout out to everyone that's been on top of it, trying to get me back on, on skis and, and in my rehab. You know, there's been a lot of people that's helped me on the way. And of course, the team, uh, Team Spirit and Michaela and, you know, everyone that's close to me. Uh, it's been amazing. And uh, now we'll see how it goes. I am uh, pretty positive. <laughs> Awesome. Well, best of luck to you, Alex. Um, if there's an American that beats you, I won't be too bummed about it. But otherwise, I wish you the best of luck in this <laughs> upcoming you, season. You too, Jim. <laughs> Thanks. Nice <to> <laughs> it was good to meet you. Thanks for being on the show, Michaela. Uh, it was it was a pleasure. I really appreciate the time. Thanks for being yeah. on Arc City. Thank you. Have Thank a good you, workout. <laughs> What time it is. All right. As you can hear, probably, I'm rustling the pages of my May-June 2021 skiing history issue. Page 20, a brief history of skiing indoors. So the first generation of indoor skiing was born in Europe in the 1920s. A Brit by the name of Lawrence As no, Acecoff. Sorry, Lawrence, I'm butchering your pronunciation. He patented something that was that kind of resembled snow, a mixture of sawdust, soda crystals, and mica, and they spread it on top of straw indoors. And so the first recorded use of this mixture was in uh, Germany on a 720-foot-long slope. And they started using this other places, Norway. They started trying to build jumps indoors. And then in Madison Square Garden in New York City in 1936, they turned the thermostat to 26 degrees, pumped the air conditioning, and put real ice on the arena's floor. And they built like a huge jump and all sorts of, you know, you know, a ski hill for skiing. And they had a winter sports carnival. It was amazing for 1936, if you can believe it. Uh, Japan in the 1950s had something like that. Australia uh, started getting into it in Brisbane. And then they had this thing developed called permasnow, which was like frozen jelly, I guess. And it could freeze at a higher temperature than normal water snow. And they started making, you know, they made 20 centers in the 1990s with this permasnow. And then finally, you know, from the 1990s to now, they started using real indoor snow. They just, you know, use your typical snowmaking systems and figured out more efficient ways to keep in the cold air. And so there's one in Wittenberg, Germany. There's one in Belgium. There's one in Lithuania where World Cup skiers train. And, you know, the weather's always going to be good, at least not, well, not good, definitely not sunny. It's a little bit dark in these places, I, I can tell you from experience, but it's very consistent training. And, you know, now there's places in uh, Japan and Netherlands and the UK. Actually, there's one in Dubai that's one of the biggest in the world, and it's got the only indoor black diamond, apparently. It's also got an ice cave and toboggan runs. So the market is increasing for these. They're still really expensive to build and expensive to maintain, and it's 
kind of funny because I'm not sure how sustainable they are considering the energy use they use. So, you know, the more indoor centers we build, the more we contribute to global warming. But we won't get into that. There's one in New Jersey, actually. I'm looking at a picture right here. And I, apparently mall developers are hoping to build more of these and, you know, get people to the malls. Now, the one thing I will say that's kind of cool about this is that you can build an indoor skiing area in a place that doesn't normally have skiing. So maybe this is a way for ski racing to reach people and to stop the shrinkage of the sport. Anyway. We just got a letter. We just got a letter. We just got a letter. Wonder who it's from. All right, guys, got just one message to read to this week, but thank you for all of your messages and emails. I really appreciate it. Keeps the ideas flowing. keeps me pumped about the podcast. Anyway, arccityjimmy at gmail.com or DM me on Instagram at jimmy underscore who underscore. I will always respond. So Evo sent me a picture of Ernie McCulloch, who he says is the best known, longest serving ski school director at Montremblant. And this... Uh, picture shows Ernie's skis that he's carrying on his shoulder with a dark piece of wood extending from the toe piece and heel piece held in place by a metal clip on either end. And this is very similar to the the plate that I talked about last episode with Jake Stevens that Tessa Worley uses on the World Cup right now. She's one of the best GS skiers, you know, in the world right now. And, you know, this is uh, 60 years ago that this picture was taken. So that's pretty cool. <clears throat> And it just kind of shows, I guess, like technologies are circular or maybe we figured everything out before, but now we're just kind of honing it. I kind of wonder if skis will look drastically different or perform drastically different in, you know, 40 years or if we've kind of reached the, the pinnacle. I don't know. Anyway, that's it for our podcast this week. Uh, next time, we've got Sam DePratt, who is a teammate of mine in the U.S. ski team, and he broke not one, like I did, but both his legs. And he's a fascinating human, a fascinating ski racer, and he's got an incredible story. So get psyched for that. Stay tuned. Until then, think about skiing. Think about ripping arcs. After all, this is Arc City, and I will see you right back here next time. My name is Jimmy Krupka. Thank you for visiting Arc City. Arc City.